the legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Last week, we spoke on the question, can you trust the Old Testament? Next week, we'll focus upon, is the resurrection real? Today, we focus on marriage, sexuality, and family. And, and let me again say that much that I share today draws from the chapter on that subject in the book by Arthur and Scott Jones. Very well written. Now, sex is controversial, and it seems like you find all kinds of extremes, especially in churches and how they talk about it. Some just don't talk about it at all. Other places speak to the point that they go out and protest to those, against those that don't agree with them. And there's a lot of struggle with how much does God care about what we do in our bedrooms? That might seem like a no-brainer because doesn't God care about everything? And yet, that question is a little bit confusing. On the one hand, you'll find churches like the church that's down in Dallas with the pastor in an effort to promote his series on his sermon series on sex in a book that was coming out. He and his wife slept in a king-size bed on top of the church for 24 hours straight. Let me guarantee you that will not be happening here. And on the other hand, you have people that talk about sexual purity to the point that that one leader even mentioned that he didn't even kiss his wife until the day that he was married. Or we've had many churches that have youth programs where love waits. Some colleges do not allow hand-holding. Now, most Christians are not that restrictive, but still you see that, that confusing that confusion about it, and it's often led to the perception from those outside the church that the basic message of the Christian faith in regards to sexuality is don't do it. Don't do it. Now, this question gets a little bit confusing. Christian Mingle is a Christian dating site, and J-Date is a Jewish counterpart. They went together in 2013, they did a study of people that utilize their sites, and they asked them this question. They asked, would you be willing to have sex before marriage? 86% of those responding, remember these are Christian and Jewish sites, 
said that they would, 86%. They did a follow-up survey the next year because they wanted to know how important was their faith to these people. And they found that people, when they asked the question, would you desire to marry someone for your own religious tradition, 68% said yes. And so those, those statistics together have come to coin a phrase that people call sexual atheism. That while people believe in God, when it comes to how they live their life in the bedroom, they just assume religion stay out of it. So what does the scripture say about it? If we look at the whole of scripture, what's the basic message you get? And you find, especially in the Old Testament, there is lots written about the, the struggles that our religious ancestors had with sexuality. And it's interesting that it begins in the first chapter of Genesis. It says right from the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. So isn't it ironic that when the basic message that most people have on the outside of faith is don't do it, that basically God says do it, right? And we need to think that through a little bit more. You find the Old Testament also, remember when Abraham passed his wife off as his sister for fear that uh, because of her beauty they might kill him in order to take her when he went in that foreign land? You remember the struggles that Jacob had when he had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and the sexual politics that went on between those that ended up resulting in the 12 tribes of Israel? Do you remember King David, in spite of his greatness, wrestled with adultery? as he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And you could turn to the New Testament. If you read the book of Corinthians, it's, it's filled with struggles of the morality that that church had as they tried to bring the Christian faith and its morality into that new and different culture. So the message that you get so often is that human beings, while basically good, and sexuality, while being basically good, still is broken. We have a way of abusing this God-given gift that we have and sometimes do more harm to ourselves because of the way that we idolize it. And so in that struggle, we need to listen to what Jesus might have to say about that. You look at Jesus, it's, it's an interesting thing. He doesn't say a whole lot about sexuality. matter of fact, he says nothing about homosexuality. And so sometimes people mistake that for thinking that he doesn't care about our private lives, at least how it is lived out in the bedroom. But I think if you look at pretty carefully, when Jesus does say something about sexuality, it is very, very profound. Matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. That's an interesting passage. I've often looked at it and think, God, what are you thinking? I mean, I can't speak for women, but I know that probably just about every man has committed that sin, right? Matter of fact, in the premarital counseling I have with couples, I talk about how visual men are. And, and, and I, I, I advise them somewhat jokingly. I said, now, if a beautiful woman walks down the street and he looks, don't get on him too much, but just don't stare. Because we're visual creatures. So why would Jesus say something like this that sets everybody up for failure? And I realized this time as I was reading that passage that Jesus didn't say that to make us feel bad. 
He wasn't trying to add on to more and more restrictions about sexuality. He was trying to point out what happens to us when we separate our spiritual lives from our sexual and physical lives. And think about how prophetic these words are, especially today. Gosh, think about where we're at now. Human trafficking, something you think we should be long past, happens all over the world and even happens in our own country. Think about pornography. It's now a billion-dollar industry. Think about the way we tend to utilize sexuality and especially women as objects as we sell products over and over. Just last week, I overheard a group of men talking about Katie Ledecky, the Olympic swimmer. And they said, you know, she's quite a swimmer, but she's not much to look at. And I'm like, what? That's the thing that you want to say to somebody who's won four gold medals who dominated her sport? Jesus' words are very, very relevant. How important it is that we not see this as a restriction, but as God, through Jesus, trying to raise up our expectations of our sexuality, knowing that we only can live them in a whole way, in a healthy way, with the help of God. And here's the other interesting thing when you examine how Jesus approaches sexuality. Think of the times when people came to him whose sexual lives are obviously messed up. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan, he discussed theology with? He ends up telling her that she has five husbands and the man that she's with now is not her husband? And because he didn't condemn her, but he spoke the truth to her, she went and became the church's first evangelist as she went back to her village and told all that Jesus had said to her. Or how about the woman when Jesus was in the Pharisee's home and she comes running in and she bows down at his feet and her tears she uses with her hair to wash his feet. And the Pharisee condemns Jesus along with her for being around a woman with that kind of reputation. And Jesus lifts her up and says, look, you didn't even greet me with a kiss when I came into your door, and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. He who is forgiven much loves much. And then the story that we read today earlier, the woman who committed adultery. And somehow Jesus was caught in a no-win situation, and yet he negotiated a path that affirmed the woman, refused to condemn her, at the same time, upheld that high expectation. Remember what he said? He said to her, who condemns you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. High expectations, but high grace. Somehow Jesus keeps that mixture together in each and every way. So how can we flip the tables on this subject with a world that tends to think that we're uh, too old-fashioned and don't don't get it. And I think if you turn to the scriptures, you find there's much to offer. There are places where the scripture says yes to our sexuality. And you can go to the second chapter of Genesis, right after that first chapter that says to be fruitful and multiply, it says this is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother, embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. And it speaks of the bond that happens when two people come together. That sexual bond creates a, a mystery a sacredness that bonds us in special ways. The Apostle Paul says it as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
He says, don't refuse to meet each other's needs unless you both agree for a short period of time to devote yourselves to prayer. Our sexuality has a tremendous power to bond us together. And there's science that backs that up, right? They tell us that when we bond together sexually, there's a chemical that, that exists in our brain called oxytocin. It's the same chemical that happens when a mother holds a baby and unites us in ways that bonds us forever if we allow it to. But sexuality is more than that. The scriptures also point out that it's for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. And how much of a power that is as well. How many of you have got children that are now adults? Isn't it a fun watching them grow up, become adults, and become parents? It brings so much pride to see that happen. And that bonds you as a couple, does it not? But sexuality is even more than that. Marriage is much more than that. Not everyone's called to have children. Not everyone can have children. And yet, because of our commitment to one another, there's a strength and discovery about what love's about that shows us what God's love's about. Because couples, you're with each other through the good and the bad. You see each other's flaws. And you continue to stick it out and be with one another. I read a book a while back by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage, but the subtitle says, what if God intended marriage to make you holy instead of make you happy? Isn't that a different twist from what our culture tends to throw on sexuality? And think about how many times that has to be true. Times when, when one of the two persons can't give because of whatever is going on in their life. Because you stick it out, it brings a strength. Marriage is not always about happiness, is it not? I know a couple in the church that I was at in New Albany, Irma Watkins. They were married for 50 years. And then her husband suffered a stroke that made him impossible to have any communication and it even made him incoherent. So he's basically like a child. And she cared for him for eight years in her own home. She learned how to bring in help from time to time so she could have some life. But I remember standing with her in the hospital. Her husband had taken a turn for the worse. I think he'd die about a month later. And he was unconscious, and I prayed for him with her by his side. And she just held my hand, and she looked up, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, you know, people told me that I should put him in a home, but I just can't do it. And, you know, I don't regret a single moment, eight years. And I looked in her eyes, and I, I said to God, I want to love like that, because <laughs> that's a pure love. It's amazing. It's incredible. And that's the bond that God intends for us. And let me finish with one more statement. Because not all of us are called to marriage. Some of us are find ourselves in a state of singlehood, whether by our choice or not. And so we need to hear that the scripture also suggests that celibacy is a gift. And I hope that you hear it not as a restriction, but as a gift. Paul speaks of it again in 1 Corinthians. He says, I want you to be free from concerns. A man who isn't married is concerned about the Lord's concerns, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the world's concerns. 
how he can please his wife. And so he goes on to affirm both as gifts. Sex is a gift and not having sex is a gift as well. And I hope that you hear that affirmation. Matter of fact, I, I heard a study came out just this week that says, and, and what they've done is they've tried to combat the studies that say that, that people are happier that are married and those that are not. Because they focused in on people that had never married. The people who might be single at heart. And what they found is that those people might even actually be healthier than people that are married. They found that, they have, that they're less neurotic. They found that they're more open-minded. And because they don't have to depend on anyone else, they become quite skilled at many different things. And so they're a well-rounded person. So if that's your calling, I hope that you hear that and accept that and, and ask for God to help you take that energy and time that you have and invest it in the places that make a difference in the kingdom of God. So let me close with how Scott and Arthur Jones close their chapter. In case someone asks you about what religion says about sexuality and marriage and family, they write, we often make the mistake of thinking we can separate our sex lives from the rest of ourselves, but it's not true. Who we are in our most intimate moments can bless or ruin marriages and lives. God has a vision for the whole world to be good. That means he has high hopes for our sex lives, but also grace when we mess up. Let us pray. Lord, we want to lift up first couples in the midst of marriage and their lives are busy and if they have children they're being pulled in many different directions. May they learn to make each other priority. May they make time for that physical intimacy that can help strengthen and bond all the other aspects of the relationship. We pray for those who are in a state of singlehood, either by choice or not, that they might find that, that celibacy is, is a gift can be used a chance to, to work on themselves, to work in their relationship with you, or to devote to others. And be with those who have found their lives broken. May they know that your grace is always sufficient, that time after time you reached out and accept us as we are, takes us as we are, and works to renew and hold us together. For all these things, we are so very grateful. In the name of Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.